1: Welcome back to Earth Station Trek, a show where we trek from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. I'm Charles Kelso, and it's my privilege to introduce the Earth Station Trek crew, Keith Johnson. Greetings. Alan Siler, Nanu Nanu. And Veronica Daschle. Hi. And we've got some news this week. Holy cow, do we have news this
2: week. <laughs> it's so funny that we'll go a couple of weeks and not a thing happens, and then all of a sudden you've got like... 10 news stories that are all breaking at the same time. And one of them, uh, this is hot off the press. Yeah. Uh, literally you, you posted a link to it 11 minutes before (laughs) I logged into our, our, our recording. Right. This is like brand new. I haven't even read the whole article yet, but, um, there's this guy called Matt Shackman. He's a director and boy, is he having a big day today Yeah, because he is the, he was the director of Wandavision, and it, uh, Emmy nominations came out today, and WandaVision is up for 23 wow. awards. Wow. That's impressive. Wow. But then, 11 minutes ago, uh, we just found out that he's also signed a deal to direct the next Trek film. Yeah. That's exciting. Because i tell you, WandaVision was a spectacular show, and I am so excited to see what he's going to bring to Star Trek.
3: Is it a Kelvinverse or OS film? Yeah, it is. No, it's
2: it's always kelvin from this point oh,
3: okay mm-hmm. well that tempers my excitement somewhat but hey cool.
2: well i'm sorry but it's matt <laughs> shackman so you it's it should be really good yeah and, it'll be enjoyable uh, yeah 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 and according to the article uh the sort of the word is that production will reportedly begin next spring so that's exciting news
3: that's around the corner that's that's not yeah really a, yeah, yeah That's not a long delay at all
2: yeah, totally. And they're wow. expecting that now that director's been set, that this thing is just going to like, you know, they're going to hit pre-production and they're going to, it's going to be like a rocket.
3: You know, one thing I will say about that, Alan, which is interesting, I think it's kind of cool is there's so much of the old guard that is Star Trek and there's so much new blood coming in. And yeah. that is, that is exciting because I mean, oh, even yeah. names I've never heard of before now associated with Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of cool. Um, Matt comes
2: from a theater background, so I'm—I was just about to look up his IMDb to see how much film and television he's done. Hmm. I was um, just
1: doing that actually. Oh, thank you. Yep, thank you. and. I see one f- uh, film credit and everything else, television, okay. a lot of things like Game of Thrones, obviously okay. WandaVision, a lot of uh, sort of high profile shows like that. One episode of Mad Men, which gets points from me. That's one of my favorite TV shows, <laughs> um, but not a lot of film. But it, it sounded like from the article that he had turned down some other things because like, he wants to do Star Trek. So, nice.
2: Yeah. Nice. I like the sound of that.
1: Now, this doesn't sound like it's the same project that Kalinda Vasquez is working on. We had talked about her just recently. Right. But this has some other writers associated with it. Yeah. Uh, Still ladies, though. I had their names here just a minute. Lindsay Beer and Geneva Robertson. Mm, Okay. So I'm not familiar with them at all. (laughs) <laughs> I and mean, I didn't even get that far into my research yet. Nope. So,
2: I mean, this that's how new this story is. Yeah, it's I, exciting.
1: I sort of threw it in our Facebook group before, <laughs> before everyone got in.
2: <laughs> okay, so on to the rest of the news that all came out this past week, um, beginning with a tweet from Anson Mount on July 7th, which reads, The last ep of season one starts shooting today. That being July seventh, old school fans are going to be very excited to see what we're pulling. We're trying to pull off in this one, getting to do so many things I've never attempted as an actor. So much fun, boy! That's exciting. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's very vague,
1: Anson. I need more details.
2: (laughs) He can't. He can't be too you know unvague, but at least his vagueness is pointed directly at old school trekkers that's true oh man that's true. i'm really looking forward to that um next story is that the first four films are being released on uh 4k coming out september 21st and uh all the films are being newly remastered from the original film and are presented in dolby vision and hdr 10 And uh, so every, uh, it looks like it's an eight-disc set. It's um, the new remaster plus the uh, original Blu-ray with all the uh, already existing uh, special features included on that. Mm. So this is going to be a big package of only four movies. Not really sure why there aren't any more than four movies included in
1: it. Yeah, I was just complaining about the. I mean, mentioning this on Facebook today. (laughs) It's just weird. It seems to me like they just ran out of time. They couldn't do the other two movies in time for the deadline. But it's like if you released uh, a collection of Star Wars, the original two movie set. Right. Like, well, but there was more than that. Like, why, yeah. why are we getting a collection of four of six movies? That seems very strange to me. It, exactly. I, are they going to release the other two by themselves later? Or that more likely any sense there will be a six movie set next year that I'll right. feel like I also have to buy. Yeah. But
2: then you can trade in the current four movie set. He yeah. will
0: want
1: <laughs> it might have different packaging.
0: Yes.
2: It will definitely have different packaging because yeah. they have to have different these pin money somehow. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I,
1: I tell you, I am a sucker for packaging. Me
2: too.
0: So is he.
1: I'm, I'm planning to buy the original series again for that for that slip case with the cool. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um, so anyway, the box set is currently available
2: for pre-order. Yep. So go to Amazon or wherever you shop and pick that up.
1: Yeah, you can buy some of the Star Trek movies.
2: Exactly. Some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see, there's also, and this, this is, this is kind of confusing to me, a brand new remaster of the 2001 director's cut of the first film. Right. That's going, that they're about to start on, which, uh, is going to be, when it comes out, it'll be available for a limited time exclusively on Paramount plus. And they're saying that this uh, new remaster is going to take six to eight months to complete. Mm so why would that not be part of this box set
1: yeah i don't know i don't i didn't read all the details i know darren doctorman recently did a podcast about it on glorious that i haven't had time to listen to it yet yeah but um i'm excited that there's gonna be a 4k release of the director's edition of the motion picture that's a big deal yeah. but yeah um yeah i had assumed it would be in this set until you just said that so uh, i guess not
2: well yeah because the the new set comes out in september and they're yeah. saying it's going to take eight months to do the remaster so i don't understand why that would be a separate thing
1: maybe they'll package it with star trek five and six maybe they will (laughs) that's true
2: (laughs) how much of star trek one can you
1: take (laughs) right
2: okay so uh let's see also in the film uh news star trek the voyage home which i like to refer to as star trek (laughs) whales is getting a new theatrical release um for its 35th anniversary uh via mm-hmm. fathom events and that will take place on august 19th and august 22nd which is a thursday and a sunday if i remember correctly mm-hmm. uh and that's supposed to be uh, from what i read that's supposed to be the new um the new 4k remaster is what they're going to broadcast uh, in the theaters well i hope so i, would, I, I mean, exactly but it's funny that sometimes that doesn't happen you mm-hmm. know like uh labyrinth got re-released for its 30th anniversary with a new remaster and they you know fathom you know broadcast this crappy old copy mm. you know whatever <laughs> anyway so uh anyway so that's coming up uh in just a few weeks and that's pretty exciting
1: yeah that's a good that's a good call too because that's probably the most broadly accessible star trek film out of absolutely, all of them. So yeah, so absolutely. if you're gonna drag someone along with you that's going <laughs> to drag them to. That's my plan.
2: <laughs> it's also, to me, it's the most, um, it's the most ensemble
1: mm. yeah, of the true. movies. That's true. You know,
2: everyone doesn't have an equal part in it, but everyone gets good stuff in it. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I love it so much. Okay, so I don't know. I missed this somehow. So maybe you guys did too. Did you know that there was a new, fifteen second teaser trailer for Lower Decks? That came out a few days ago.
1: Yeah, I saw that clip. I think it was yesterday I saw it. Um, yeah. It's sort of a chase scene.
2: It is. So uh, a new teaser trailer. Um, it's uh, Boimler and um, Mariner. Mariner. Thank you. Uh, and they're in what looks like to be uh, the white dress uniforms from the TNG movies, which is interesting. And they're in mm. a car chase. And uh, they, oh. they're they on a space station. They're going down the, the corridors. And all of a sudden, Boimler says, look out, fish people. And they g- crash through some stuff. And he says, sorry. And the Antidean, it turns out to be Antedians, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really cool, says, we're not people. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. That's the extent of the trailer.
3: The Antedians Are those the ones from the uh, TNG? Yeah. The, um, from season the one, two. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ones people. with it- the fish people and i think there were two different yeah i remember that when yeah the were, fish people
2: kinda... and the dog people were like
3: yeah. having fights
2: in the corridors yeah okay I isn't that, that right, right. or i'm getting two episodes mixed up
1: yeah you're no you're i'm you're, getting you're, two mixed up yeah, yeah that's the sleigh and the. And, and, oh that's right that's and, uh, right the whatever. fish
2: people are the ones that mick fleetwood played one of them.
1: right right they were frozen or something
2: yeah crazy wharf
3: wharf said what magnificent species they were yeah i remember <laughs> that
2: <laughs> okay so um we have uh, some merchandising news and that's a new deal that just got announced uh, for playmates yeah it's picked up the the Star Trek license and uh, from the article that I read the license is sort of expanded to all properties so that means modern and classic mm. which means we're gonna be getting some uh, new, merchandise for the old shows it sounds like and some new merchandise for discovery lower decks and that stuff yeah so uh i know this is one that you were particularly interested in charles
1: yeah the playmates figures were i know a lot of kids like grew up with migos in the 70s and that sort of thing but playmates were my jam in the late like really early (laughs) the 90s you know because i was 10 in 1990 so uh, i was perfect age for it but the playmates for me are I mean, I would say one of, if not the greatest toy lines I ever had in my life or that I've ever seen. I mean, yeah. and, and, they, and the the toys that made us, they made good points that the the great thing about the Playmates figures was that they were toy enough for kids to play with, mm-hmm. but they were collectible enough for adults because they, they had enough accuracy for adults. And if you yeah. look at a Playmates toy, it's very accurate, but also sort of caricature ish, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so it sort of threads that line beautifully, I think. And I mean, if you want to just put them on a shelf, you can put them on a shelf. If you want to play with them, I've done both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to get too excited about this yet because I mean, in the last episode, I was talking about the terrible toys they had with the 2009 Star Trek movie. And those were also done by playmates. So they've they've hit both oh. ends of... Uh, okay. We'll see. If, if they can get back to the old four and a half inch figures... Like, and I just want them to be a continuation of the toys I had when I was a kid and I don't want them to do anything different. Well, <laughs> good luck with that. Right.
0: They need to <laughs> match we'll our giant collection.
2: Right, exactly. <laughs> and apparently, according to the article, again, this is supposed to include like a, a full range of stuff. Characters, ships, all kinds yeah. of things. So, oh, man, geez. I'm excited. I, I'm really ready for new trek merchandise to hit the shelves please do it well playmates and thank you exactly don't break our hearts man okay so one last news story and it's a big one uh and it's something that's taking place in uh well by the time this episode airs it'll only be four or five days after people hear this so star trek at um, san diego comic-con We have uh, at least two panels coming up that they have announced so far, um, and that is Lower Decks and Prodigy. They're going to be doing two back-to-back panels, uh, so basically an animation block, which I think is really neat. So Friday, July 23rd at 1 o'clock, we have a Prodigy panel, and this is a packed panel. It features Kate Mulgrew, Brett Gray, Ella Purnell, Angus Emery, Riley Alice a Lazraki, <laughs> d bradley baker and uh jason manzoukas and it also has uh kevin and dan hageman and uh, co-producer ben Hybun or hibben i'm not sure which um so that's going to be amazing and i will be shocked if we don't get our first big trailer yeah at that time yeah. I hope it's not just uh, like a 10-second teaser or anything like that. It's, it's time for a full trailer, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, some footage.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm, ty- I'm ready to see these characters in action.
1: Including Janeway. Like, in- especially
2: Janeway. We've waited. Come on. Oh, yeah. I'm ready for it. And then uh, right after that, uh, Friday, July 23rd at 2 o'clock is the Lower Decks panel. And this one features uh, Tawny Newsom, Jack Quaid, and Eugene Cordero, along with uh, Mike McMahon. So that's going to be a good panel, and that'll you know we've already gotten uh, an, a, you know at least two trailers from season two, and we know a little bit of detail in it. So it's going to be interesting to see how much more they have to say about what's coming up. Yeah, and for for both of these panels, but I, I, for me especially, Prodigy, I'm I'm ready to get some news on that one or a release date
1: or that would be nice too i would like that also
2: (laughs) exactly and assuming that they do release a trailer for it surely that will include a release date
1: 2021 (laughs) like right okay right exactly give me a month
0: at least that (laughs) okay maybe
1: just a season
0: right i i have a question for those who are more familiar with comic-con protocols than i am I'm assuming those are both going to be in Hall H.
1: No, it's Comic Con at home. Is it all? It's all virtual this year again, right? Mm -hmm.
0: I thought they were doing some in person, like Dragon Con is.
1: No, I well, I might be wrong, but I think I think Comic Con is just at at home this year again.
0: Okay, so in general, Comic Con. Yeah. Uh huh. (laughs) They they completely clear the hall between between panels just like do at Dragon Con, right? Yeah. Okay, because I was thinking of back to back, and like I know you'd have to pick. I know exactly. No way you could get into both,
2: <laughs> right? And I would pick Prodigy, just because I'm so anxious to find out any little thing about it. <laughs> and that wraps up the news for this week.
1: All right. Well, Keith, you had some this week in track for us this week.
3: Yeah, actually, this week is a relatively slow week in terms of events. There's a whole bunch of esoteric stuff about uh, second line music producers and stuff like that. It's not <laughs> not all that germane. But so really, what I had this week and today specifically, are two birthdays. And and taking an order, born on this day, July 13th, 1926, um, unfortunately passed away in 2008, was the late Robert Justman. Mm. And anybody who knows anything about the old Star Trek knows Justman is one of the the people who came into the original series of Gene Roddenberry. I've always found very interesting. Uh, I think you can talk about a lot of creators. I think some people say this about George Lucas, is you have people who have incredible visions and they fight and they get this vision put and then they they really need other people to sharpen it. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's vision, and I think in guidance for Star Trek cannot be denied, but the truth of the matter is there's so many people around Gene who made Star Trek what it was. Mm -hmm. There were people who argued with him. Uh, There were people who rounded out his rough edges. Uh, The truth of the matter is if Gene had had his way, Star Trek would have been a little bit more of a continually heavy-handed morality play than it turned out to be and Robert Justman was one of those people. He he functioned as associate and supervising producer on the original series. He was there from the beginning, as well as The Next Generation. He has functioned as, he was an associate director, uh, associate director, a director, supervising producer on the OS and TNG. And like a lot of people back in those days, he has a really, really long and varied history. Some other things he worked on in the industry include the the uh, Marlon Brando version of Mutiny on the Bounty back in 1962. He was also worked on a movie called Planet Earth which some people who are deep fans of Rottenberry may remember. It's a movie in the Rottenberry style starring John Saxon about a man who wakes up in an apocalyptic future, stars a whole bunch of Star Trek guest stars and stars, Star Trek writers. Uh, He also was worked on other series such as The Man from Atlantis, Mission Impossible and Outer Limits. And back in those days, if you worked on any kind of science fiction and stuff like that, you pretty much cycle between all those those shows. Justman was a really, really important part of Star Trek. He really helped shape the look and the theme of that show along with some other people like Gene Kuhn, DC Fontana and Herb Solo. Um, He actually was so important to Star Trek then the next generation, there was a shuttlecraft named after him. There was a shuttlecraft called Justman. So that's uh, that was the first. The second one, like they say in Marvel Comics, Nuff said, uh, 1940, Patrick Stewart was born. <laughs> and <Woo-hoo>! yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of says it all. Um, my, I think I just found very interesting about Patrick Stewart. Everybody, of course, knows him as Captain Picard and um, Professor X, and also, everybody also knows what an incredibly cool and fun-loving guy he is. I still find it so interesting about Patrick Stewart is that he made Star Trek what it was in the new era, which was the revival. But I, I've always found it so interesting. One, Gene Rottenberry absolutely did not want Patrick Stewart to play Picard. He fought against him. He thought he was too old. He thought he was too bald. He didn't like his accent. And he only had really one in-person meeting with with um, Patrick Stewart and Patrick Stewart said, even then Gene didn't really warm to him. So I think in time he came to accept him, but he never really loved Patrick Stewart as his vision of Picard. And I find it so interesting that again, sometimes you have to have other people help you to kind of realize your vision because obviously Patrick Stewart does a great job. And the other thing I always find very interesting about Patrick Stewart is by his own admission, he was a very quote unquote British theater kind of uptight actor. So when he came to Star Trek in the 80s, first off, you got to remember back in the 80s, science fiction was not what it is now. I mean, now somebody says, I'm going to do a science fiction franchise or a comic book based franchise. That's not a big deal. It can, bo- it can be both dramatic and profitable and respectable. And back then, there was still a little bit of iffiness about going from, say, state uh, a theater career, especially a British theater career, to a science fiction show. And even though there sounds like there should be no more sure thing than being, doing a Star Trek series, you have to remember this was the revival of Star Trek. And at that time, people had only seen Kirk and Picard um, and Pike in one, you know, two episodes, the two pilots and the redone series. And so this was a risk when he did this. And so it's, I, it's very interesting to think about you have a British theater actor who wasn't even sure that this was a good move. Uh, he, by his own admission, he didn't even unpack for like a year after he got to the United States because he wasn't sure the show was going to make it. Gene Rottenberry never really warmed to him. And now you look at it, you can't imagine anybody else taking up the mantle from Kirk and crew as uh, Patrick Stewart as Picard. And I just think that's an, an, an amazing thing. And the other thing I've always found so interesting is he said working on that show with those actors is when he learned unwind when he first started there, he said he used to get mad because he was so serious and and Jonathan Frakes especially and Brent Spiner would be <laughs> cracking jokes between takes. And he's like, what's wrong with you? Don't you know? And a couple of times he actually blew up at them. And it's like, don't you know this is real serious? And they're like, dude, you know, calm down. And when, the, when they would yell action, they'd hit their marks. And so now the Patrick Stewart, you see who is such an incredibly fun-loving and laid back guy, that's not the Patrick Stewart that actually entered the set of TNG and that show actually did that for him, which I think is, really fascinating
0: and and another shout out to another fantastic mini series he did um i claudius with the bbc
3: oh, good point good point he and had hair in it
0: i'm <laughs> yes, pretty sure yes. i'm pretty sure yeah. it's still a wig because i'm pretty sure he never he was born bald but <laughs> yeah it's, <laughs>
3: well, most, most it's awesome yeah he he went bald very early I think in his 20s he had I forget the name of the actual kind of disease that he had Um, um, it's the thing where you just lose hair early yeah so he was going bald like in his his 20s I I'd forgot about all Claudius and also of course his one-man show of um, Scrooge which is really good Mm, yeah Uh, I first saw Patrick Stewart ironically in the same year even though these movies didn't come out in the same year I saw them in the same year which is Dune and Excalibur Mm -hmm. that was my first exposure to him
2: so. I'm sorry, you're all missing his best role ever and that was in Jeffrey. Oh, none of you, I about you that. know what Jeffrey is? Yeah, like, absolutely. It I was
0: absolutely
2: a, did. It was a sort of dramatic comedy uh where it's set in the uh, early AIDS period mm-hmm. and and oh. he plays a very effeminate gay yes. gentleman.
3: With Steven Weber from Wings. So
2: it's it's very it's an interesting role to see him in. Yeah. And that's,
0: and that's Hilarious.
3: <laughs> and right. That's actually to your point that was another one of the roles that helped him basically loosen up and not take himself right. so seriously and, and be something you know, other than just um, kind of a staid British actor again, by his, in his own definition. So happy birthday to Sir Patrick Stewart.
1: Yeah. Happy birthday to Patrick Stewart and Bob Justman. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break to promote our fellow ESO network podcast shows. And then when we come back, we'll get into our discussion topics. So stay right there.
3: Hello everyone, Dr. Geek here with a shout out to all the scientists who worked tirelessly to bring a COVID-19 vaccine into reality. (laughs) Let's face it, creating something of this magnitude is a miracle worthy of Dr. McCoy himself. And now, Dr.
1: Geek needs you to do your part. Remember, each shot is one small step back to normal,
3: one giant leap to putting the pandemic behind us. We can do this. For more information, visit vaccines.gov to find your nearest provider.
2: Hello there! I can see you have great taste in podcasts. Keep your discerning streak going with the SoulForge podcast. No topic is off-limits on the SoulForge.
1: We talk about life, toys, dating, geekiness, love, nerdiness, sex and dating, TV, movies, and just about
2: anything you can think of. Check out the SoulForge podcast soulforgepodcast.com
1: and wherever you find your podcasts we're everywhere
3: Okay, so this week we're discussing the Enterprise episode, Dear Doctor, season one, episode 12. A quick recap for those who may not quite remember it well. This is an episode where the Enterprise crew encounters a planet where people are dying of what they think is a disease, a group of of people called the Wallachians. As they dig further into this, they find out, well, two things. First off, that this is a planet that has two sentient species, the Wallachians and the mink. The Velocians are technologically advanced and "quote unquote" more intelligent. The Mink are considered a more primitive species. They don't have technology. Their language skills aren't as well developed. And the best example that for humans it might be thinking about it: the Neanderthals were still around, and we as CroMagnons are also still around. What they find out in a short, long, in a short order, however, the Velocians are dying out, but the Mink aren't. And it turns out that's because it's not a disease, it's not a plague, it's not a virus, it's, a, it's not a bacteria, it is a natural genetic decay of the Wallachians' genetic structure. And left alone, left unchecked, left untreated, in two centuries, according to Flocks, the Wallachians will all die off, leaving the planet to the mink. And what we then get is a discussion of, should Archer and crew save the Wallachians, because Flocks has the ability to do so, because if this is a natural thing, saving the Wallachians will condemn the mink to eternal servitude and second-class status. And there is proof that in time, the mink will not only survive, but thrive and will become the dominant species on the planet. So it's a very early episode about what will later on become the prime directive.
0: Very obviously and Mm -hmm. overdone.
3: you mean the prime at the directive end, reference. at the end
0: at the end yeah yeah that yeah.
3: speech was a little heavy handed yeah uh, yeah another reason i like this episode even though it's, it's obviously on the surface it's a prime directive episode i watched i've seen this many times i've watched it twice in the last two days i actually think it's a wonderful episode it's one I of the love best. it i think it's yeah. fantastic because okay. it's not just prime directive it's 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 flocks getting yeah. used to dealing with humans it's it's some incredibly brief but incredibly informative and entertaining. There's a conversation between Flocks and To Paul that is just amazing to me. There's a there's some conversations and interaction with Flocks and Quim and Cutler, a human who is has is developing feelings for Flocks, and there's a whole discussion not just on. Flocks into Paul's reactions to whether or not they should save the Velachians or not. But Flocks having to talk to Crewman Cutler about, hey, you're developing feelings for me. I need to tell you about my culture because my culture is very different from your culture. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just a prime directive episode, it's an episode about just different cultures and the differences between people and how different groups of people can see things the same way. So I think it's a really great episode, not just for a prime directive, but just for. it it, it, to me it's an episode that represents enterprise at its best which is these are people who are going into deep space for the first time and we are learning a maturity of what it means to go out there in deep space
2: so charles it seems like you might have a difference (laughs) of opinion and i'm very (laughs) curious to hear it
1: well there are a lot of things about this episode that i do like um But then there's a lot of things that I I feel are sort of intrinsic Enterprise things. I've said before, I'm not a fan of Enterprise. Um, I, I, I didn't think that it did Star Trek as well as previous shows had. I thought the well had sort of run dry by the time Enterprise was on the air. In this case, really the... The, the biggest thing, I mean, aside from the fact that that's not what, how evolution works, but I'll let that go because Star <laughs> Trek has never used evolution. Right. And anytime they mention evolution on Star Trek, someone is going to de-evolve into a lizard or something. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'll set that to the side, but I, I, I find the the premise, I don't think quite works. I mean, it would be like saying we could, we should, we shouldn't allow this asteroid to hit this planet and wipe out the sentient species because the cockroaches might evolve one day. Like you're it's, it's too broad a scale of where, Of the potential, the potential that we're trying to preserve of this planet in the future, when you can't know for sure that the mink are going to evolve into the dominant species, or that that couldn't be accomplished without the the other guys, you know, surviving. It seems Mm -hmm. to me like you could have easily said, "Okay, what we've we found a cure. We'll give it to you, but you have to make allowances for the mink to develop on their own." Yeah, and then you just solve all the problems.
3: Question, because when I read online, uh, I read I read some reviews and a lot of people, it's so funny, they said exactly what you said. A lot of people said, this show sucks. And then other I people said- I didn't say that. You didn't say well, that. Right, sorry. Okay. <laughs> you didn't say that. But a lot of people would say they hated it because of the evolution and, and the word genocide got thrown around a lot. And then a lot of other people said, no, this is a good show. And what was your feeling about the evolution? Because a lot of people- we're saying that the use of the word and the phrase evolution just threw them. So what about that? Was well, they're it they're
1: acting as if it's, there's a, a preordained evolution that that, but that's not how it works. I mean, mm-hmm. y- you couldn't look at the, 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 lo- the lower mammals and when the dinosaurs were around and say, Oh, well, if the dinosaurs just weren't here, they would evolve into humans. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not like you see on, you know, the, the the classic picture of the, the monkey turning into a bigger monkey, turning into a caveman, right. turning into a man. You right. know what I mean? It's it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's, you know, how species change through natural selection. Sometimes you they advance. Sometimes they don't. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't think you could just look at a species and say, oh, these guys are getting a little smarter and a little smarter. So, these other was, guys must be destined to die off because they have this congenital disease. Like, nature's some big system causing one species to die so another species can live.
2: But, Flox was basing that right on scans that he was taking now and information right. that right. he was provided from the past. Sure. So, he's seeing some kind of progression. Sure. He, and know, and, so I, and I believe that the
1: Mink are getting smarter and, and advancing. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, I don't think that, I mean, that's it's a big leap to say, so this other species should die.
3: Right. Well, you I, know. I think to your point, and I think your point is well taken. I think I think what happens with that use of the word evolution is evolution really has two, for me, the evolutionary process. It has two broad definitions, mm-hmm. and that is survival of the fittest, and there's also dying off of the less fit. And so I think in this case, the word evolution, in my the way I think of it, as I hear what you're saying. The the word when I kept hearing evolution, to your point, I wasn't thinking so much as the mink as I was thinking about. A survival of the fittest, as Charles Darwin said, it is there was something wrong with the falcons such that they're dying off because they're not the fittest. So that, in a way, that's evolutional. this, this is evolution. We're coming to an evolutionary dead end. To your point about the mink, that's a good point. Then to the point, Phyllox did say it's possible they could become the dominant species, and it may take many millennia. They could go back, and you could go back in three thousand years, and maybe the mink are at the same basic intellectual level yeah. that they are now mm-hmm. however the reason I find it very interesting is that when I when I was talking about the show I did you know specifically said they're sentient because they are sentient you know they're not like on the level of dogs or cats or anything they are intelligent beings they have a language they can understand technology to a certain extent so I but to your point does that mean that in a thousand years or two thousand years or ten thousand years they will get to the level of the you can't say that right I, I agree with that right um, and also
0: i feel like it if, if they're using it as survival of the fittest and this is how nature is going how is is them sharing that technology different than like uh, whatever country originally developed the uh covid vaccine sharing it with everyone else
3: well, that goes into, and this is interesting because we definitely have to have a whole show about the prime directive. I think we're going to be all over the map our, <laughs> our beliefs in it. But I think that all goes back to, that's a good point, Veronica. It really boils down to one planet versus you know, a country. So in this case, if you have people say in the Western world on earth who develop vaccine and technology, and then they help people in Africa or South America, it's all one planet and one species. And I think in this point, the prime directive is this is an entire. Intu- we see this whole planet as a body, so we can't do anything for the entire planet. Uh, it's it's a it's a tough one. Well, when yeah, you talk about the Prime Directive. Um, yeah, even
1: looking at the survival of the fittest, though, if you're assuming that the the Manx natural ability to survive sort of trumps mm-hmm. the other, what are the other guys called? I keep forgetting their name. Wallachians. The, Wallachians. the Wallachians. But the Volackians developed space travel and made it far right. enough out to catch the attention of someone who could come help. So right. surely that.
0: The,
1: they're fit enough to survive you know they would have made it if uh you know those guys weren't jerks
3: <laughs> yeah uh i have another question but alan what do you think
2: oh um about what
3: uh, i uh, just what do you feel about it because i think that uh, charles well, and um, veronica are hitting to the to, uh, to the Hitting to the meat of it, which is people kind of either like the premise or don't like the premise.
2: I, I, I like it because uh, mainly because of the uh, the moral dilemma that gets explored mm-hmm. and the uh, the difference of opinion between Flocks and Archer and right. how it kind of puts them at odds with each other. But also, uh, I really like the and in most episodes, this would be the B story, the exploration of Flocks and his society but right. it's not really a b story in this one it's used as sort of like supporting evidence Absolutely. for like presenting to the enterprise crew you know what uh what social differences and cultural differences actually mean and it's sort of like uh provides a template not really a template but it provides um some kind of comparison for how humans will have to start learning to deal with first contact situations yeah. you know you've got um Cutler, who uh, I, the actress passed away not too yeah. long after the couple of episodes that she did, right. which is so sad because it's a fantastic character. And I would love to have seen her do more. But it's interesting that um, she uh, has this uh, sort of attraction to Phlox yeah, without really knowing what it is she's getting into. And they use him instructing her about cultural differences as sort of like a a blanket for the whole episode as a whole and i think it's really in in that sense it's very cleverly written
1: yeah yeah i i, I like that i'm a sucker for really day of, day in the life on a ship or a station episode yeah. so i i, I yeah. love those scenes where they're just hanging out in the ship and watching movies and yeah and, and you know and,
3: and
2: with uh he and hoshi in the mess hall yeah. You know, doing uh, language lessons. I love that.
1: And this episode had a lot of alien languages, which I like. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I love when there's just scenes with made up alien languages. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's great. I do think that uh, as far as uh, Hoshi goes, I think it's really interesting that she was uh, a linguist. That yes. she had to, you know, this is really before the days of, in the early days of the Universal Translator. And so she's really having to do the legwork. Mm-hmm. In a lot of these situations, to figure out how to communicate with things and to figure out how to program the UT to decipher, and I think that's a really, really great angle that they took with her character. Yeah, which is a side point; it has nothing right. to do with and, this
1: episode. And I thought it was uh, nice when you know she realized that the Mank were speaking a different language. Uh, yeah, if, I mean, the, to me, the Mank looked just like the other guys. Yeah. So I, they act like they're they're so different that they're not compatible. They right. visually they look. I mean, I, if there's a difference in the makeup, I couldn't tell what it was
3: <laughs> very slight. I think their, their facial ridges were not quite as pronounced as the right. Wallachians. OK, I also noticed that some of the Wallachians the generally were a little taller than the okay. make. Yeah, you're right. They were yeah. Just a yeah. little taller mm-hmm. and a little slimmer. And um, the mink were just a little shorter. And, and again, as an analog to our history, well, you know, we always say there were two, two hominid species on Earth. We now realize there were more than two yeah, hominid species on Earth. A bunch. Um, yeah, there was the people they call the hobbits down in Australia. There's at least two yeah. or three species down Australia away. But the, the ones that seem to have lasted the longest were Cro-Magnon, which is us, and the Neanderthals. And now the Neanderthals were slightly smaller and a little um, stouter than we are. Uh, I also find it very interesting to your point about the not being similarities, because most European people of European ancestry, Caucasian ancestry, have as much as 6% Neanderthal DNA yeah. in them, which I find fascinating. I, I think my ancestors, Africans, well, I have European in me too, but I think most people of African descent don't have very much Neanderthal mm. DNA. So I, I agree with you, Charles. I thought that was very interesting where he kind of said we have no similarities. I tend to think there should probably be some some similarities in their DNA because they probably yeah. they would have to have a common ancestor a million yeah. or so years ago yeah I would I would think so um, one thing and I'm going to babble I'm sorry uh, I think Alan made a really good point and you did too Charles one reason I actually love this episode is the thing I always loved about Enterprise is it was showing it's it's a it's a pre it's um it's a prelude that works to me. Mm-hmm. And all the things that we took for granted, even in Kirk's time, they show you that it was difficult. And to your point, I love the fact that Hoshi is learning languages because they can't depend on a universal translator. a matter of fact, she helped develop the universal translator. And to your point, Alan, when she starts talking to the mink, the entire time she's having conversations with the mink, she's looking down at her universal translator. She's having to read. Now she's got the Balakian down. They've got the Blockian down pretty well, but she's still having to do the mink. And I love the fact that She's talking to Flocks, um, to and, and then he liked the scene where he says, next Gerons and talked about all the different things they were gonna learn. And she said something about a thumbnail or something like that at one point. So I think it's cool that they're showing at this point in time, the technology is not it's not perfect yet. They're still scared at this point. This is only the first half of the first scene. They're still scared to go through the transporter at mm-hmm. this time. Uh, I believe at this point, they don't even really have full phasers yet. They, call, they have uh, phase cannons. Um, yeah, of course they don't pistols. have shielding yeah phase pistols they don't have shields yet that's why they have the ablative armor they, they polarize the whole armor something I find fascinating because that then comes back in the time of Voyager so like you I love all the things that show that this is the first warp 5 ship this is the first deep space crew and I love the things that they're learning not just technologically but culturally as they go out into the universe
1: I think one of my bigger problems with the episode 2 is the way it's presented dramatically mm-hmm. um, I feel like to Paul, should have discovered the that logically the other species should die, and then Flock should have been committed to saving them because he's a doctor. And then you have a debate, mm-hmm. and then you've got, like, if this was an original series mm-hmm. episode, Spock would have been saying we have to let them die. McCoy would have saying but we have to save them. And then Kirk's trapped in the middle, having to make the big decision, and right. you've got the voice on each side. Mm, the way it plays out here, I mean, Flox finds the cure, decides they shouldn't use it, and then Archer says, "Well, that goes against all of my principles," but okay. And it's over. Well, I,
2: and and I agree with you. And I think that one of the weaknesses of this episode is that that is saved for pretty much the very end of the episode. Yeah. And they have this big discussion and they part ways. You know, you go to the next scene, which presumably is the next morning or whatever. And Archer right. comes in and says, I've changed my mind. And yeah. you don't get that process of thought from right. him. You don't know what it is that led him right. to uh, make that change of heart. And He talks about um, they were uh, he decides, okay, we're not going to provide medical aid to these people. We're also they had asked for uh, warp technology to help them get farther out to maybe find other people to help them. And Archer denied that, too. And he says uh, his reasoning is I have to constantly remind myself that we didn't come out here to play God, which I find really, really interesting because. You're using that as an as a reason for not providing this stuff, but by not providing that stuff, you're still making a decision. You're still essentially playing God. You're still condemning one of those two races to to death, sure, eventual you know gradual death. But you know you're you're committing this to an evolutionary process that you honestly don't know that it's going to go that direction. Yeah. So, I find that really, really interesting. The other thing about it is I also find it super interesting that this decision was made purely shipbound. There was never an attempt to uh confer with uh Starfleet or the uh, Vulcan mm. Council. Yeah. How do you not how How is this a situation that you don't run up the flagpole to your superiors to say, "What should I do in this situation? yeah. I think that was an interesting part of it. You know, if you're if you're so determined by the end of this episode that uh, Starfleet's going to need a governing principle, a prime directive, as it were, <laughs> um, how do you not present this situation to the people who would be making that decision and putting that into place? Sure. Yeah.
1: Or even just leave it with the. Uh... The Wallachians? Yeah. Wallachians. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let me report back and you'll hear yeah. something from Starfleet in six to eight weeks. You know what I mean? Right. Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'll submit the request to corporate. It's
0: a transceiver. They'll let you know.
3: Right. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I do think that because um um Archer made a unilateral decision, I do think yeah. that – now, I feel pretty – I don't know. I don't know. You never know with the Vulcans. I think the Vulcans probably would have backed the the decision as well. But I tend to I do agree that what should have happened is there should have been two things. You're right. They should have inserted just a little bit more conversation between DePaul and Archer, maybe one additional conversation. And I do agree that something like that, he would still probably need to run that through through Starfleet. Because one of the things I did think about is this is one of these shows I think that it's rife for uh, revisiting later. For example, he mentioned um, the first guy they found, he mentioned the Ferengi. Mm-hmm. So my first thought was that once they know they're dying, if the Ferengi come back through, they will probably be forced to buy a cure from the Ferengi because if the Ferengi have the same level of technology as the Williams they may be able to, to solve the problem. And they might even I always I thought, what if they end up negotiating warp drive from the Ferengi and the cure from the Ferengi? Yeah, because j- jumping series for a second, we find out in Deep Space Nine that the Ferengi did not invent their own warp technology; they bought it from another species. So I could see the Vulcans. Yeah, sure. I can see the Ferengi coming back because they said they got they got at least two centuries according to Flocks. I can see the Wallachians in two centuries out of desperation developing their own warp drive technology but more likely probably buying it trading for it from another species such as the Ferengi and probably finding a cure and I always wonder what it would be like in say 100 years when the Federation at that point now the Federation tries to go back to that planet how the Valachians would feel about the Federation if they survived, If they say you yeah. guys were going to let us die? Yeah, I always thought that was an opportunity. There, there would have been an interesting planet to revisit. Yeah, or you could mind. have the
1: Menk showing up on Discovery in the 31st century as a, exactly. as a big galactic power. You know, right.
2: Another thing about this, and and coming back mm-hmm. to that final scene with Archer changing his mind, yeah. um, I'm sh- I, I feel certain that that feels kind of tacked on because the original script did not include it.
1: Really? It was,
2: it was, uh, they were sort of told to rewrite the ending and it uh, originally ended with Phlox basically disobeying Archer uh, and denying the, the thing. And um, so they, they were told, and I don't know if this was by the network or the uh, whatever, but they were told to, to fix that ending. And so I, f- I feel certain that that's where, you know, that's why that scene is so abrupt you know they're just like okay, well uh, I've changed my mind now uh, and I'm I agree with you. And um, there's a quote from uh, John Billingsley. He f- much preferred the original ending, hmm. and he felt the, the 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 rewritten ending, the filmed ending, was a cop out.
3: It was that's a good call, and it was the network. And to the point was they didn't want, um, as what Charles is saying about a doctor, they didn't want a doctor basically uh, in their minds being dishonest and hiding something from archer and then the other reason that they, they they added that thing with archer on there is they didn't want archers um archers um what's the word i'm looking for his authority and power uh his, yeah. his agency to be taken away they didn't want flocks to make the decision for him it's kind of like in the original script of the original series episode sitting on the edge of forever the original script kirk was paralyzed and spock is the one who prevented McCoy from saving either Keeler. And they were like, nah, you can't do that. Nobody will respect Kurt again. And so that's what happened here. They said, if you do that, then you've taken Archer's agency away and we, mm. we can't have that. Mm. Um, nowadays they might write that script differently because we can, mm-hmm. we're, di- we're a little, we're a little harder now with how we write our science fiction. You know, I I could see that uh, yeah. very different.
1: And it's interesting that they had a little rushed ending at the end when the, the episode is so yeah. leisurely as it, I mean yeah. the the cold yeah. open or the opening teaser whatever you want to call it is literally just Phlox feeding his pets and then it right. fades out right. to the credits and it's like I even we were watching it to this evening and I was like well that was engaging <laughs> like, like that that's supposed to be the part of the like you're supposed to get grab people's attentions and dun dun dun, dun right. and then you're into the show but it's that's like, true you, you, you had plenty of room if you wanted to spend more time on the on the moral debate
2: that's mm-hmm. absolutely correct and and I think that that scene is really just to show you this episode is if you didn't notice by the title, this episode is going to be about flocks Mm -hmm. and he's different because he feeds his animals, these things, and then he eats the same things himself. So he's a peculiar one. (laughs) He's an oddity, you know? So that's, kind of setting you up for um, what you're going to be getting. And mm-hmm. I really think um, there's a lot of exploration. You learn a lot of stuff about his people. Oh
3: yeah. In yeah. This
2: episode. And Absolutely. I find a lot of it fascinating. The whole polyamory thing. Mm-hmm. Um, his, it, this is apparently societal polyamory mm-hmm. um, where he has three wives and each one of those wives has additional partners. Um, and I just, you know, and, as much as we learn about him, like, I think it's fascinating that you have all these, this extended intimate family. And uh, because of that, you, you generally don't like to be touched Hmm. casually or socially. I think that's such an interesting detail to add in to uh, it. It makes so much sense in that situation, but you know, it, it makes me think of all these other questions. Like he's got three wives and they all have other partners is having three partners uh, the standard? Is that a standard yeah. family unit? You know, are there monogamous couples? You know, if there are, how accepted are they? Are they a pariah in their society? Um, are, you know, are romantic relationships exclusive to immediate partners or do they sort of share out into the network as it is? I just think there's so much that there is to learn about denobulance. Yeah. I think it's, and also, you know, I didn't think about this uh, right away, but um He's talking about, too, in his letters, that's another aspect, the uh, epistle sort of like um, structure of this episode yeah. where he's corresponding with his uh, fed- Federation counterpart. And he uh, is talking about the, the Denobulan mating season, and he describes yes. the participants as combatants. Right. Yes. That's fascinating. Yes. Yeah. I yeah, want there to is- know more about that stuff.
3: I think I agree with you Charles uh, Alan uh, and that's another reason I love the episode because um, uh, other than the tacked on ending it is literally one of the most rich and deeply written mm-hmm. episodes I've ever seen especially they they cram so much into one episode I really did. Your, yeah. um I'm going to jump and sometimes people don't like to do this but I'm going to jump outside this episode to bring in things from other episodes of Enterprise oh you we've never really, done that before yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> you make a great point Alan that I noted twice which is I know this for fact from later episodes Denobulus is an incredibly crowded planet mm-hmm. it would be like if on our planet earth we had a population of 15 to 20 billion people it is incredibly crowded and they love being in crowds there's a later episode this has been used many times in other series there's an episode for for a reason the entire crew has to be put in suspended animation and Fox mm-hmm. is the only person awake and he starts kind of sort of losing his mind because on his planet being alone is just not something that people like to do. Mm-hmm. Nobody seeks nobody seeks solitude on Denobulus. Right. Yet they don't like to be touched. Yeah,
0: I was about to say that's really odd because I'm like yeah. imagining yeah. them at DragonCon and with all these people, but you, they can't touch each other. <laughs> I don't see how that works.
3: Well, 15,
2: was, to, fifteen to twenty billion people, I believe, is the the membership cap that DragonCon is using <laughs> this year.
3: So. But but I, I thought but I thought it was it was a I thought it was a weird but a really cool thing it even at the end of the show when hoshi touches him she says you know don't, basically don't spend your time in sickbay she touches him and he kind of looks down at it yeah and he's just kind of like well this is what they you know this is what they are another thing uh, to your point about the um the, the polyamory and stuff i know from a later episode that will come up there's an episode where one of Fox's wives comes on board the enterprise and she starts she yep. basically wants to get with, with trip and he's like, yep. hey, okay. and he starts telling Trip to uh, get one of her rose petal rubdowns. And it's, it's <laughs> right. not a big deal on their planet. Right, they, exactly. don't, they don't have the kind of jealousy and possessiveness that some of us on Earth would have. Mm-hmm. Also, to your point, Alan, about their sexual mores, I found it very interesting. One of the things that he was talking to the other uh, doctor, he told him to go to this club on the, on the, on the seashore, on the beach. But then he said, don't go in unescorted. Yeah. Because it may be a little too extreme for the uninitiated. Yeah. (laughs) I'm (laughs) just like, oh boy, what does that mean, 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 right? I think another interesting thing
2: about this uh, from the flock's perspective is that you get a lot of his sort of read on the humans. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, he's fascinated by the fact that they seem to form uh, emotional connection to fictional characters on a film. Yeah. Exactly. He's he's interested in the fact that archer or bemused i would say uh by archer anthropomorphizing porthos you know and uh and you know you find you have all these details that get layered in yeah. and none of them are done extraneously they all add up to the point that the yeah. episode is trying to make and as he's going through these sort of observations Um, It leads to later in the episode, um, Flox is talking about uh, the mink and human compassion and everything, and he's like, they think the mink are being exploited by the Vlachians, so their first instinct is to rise to their defense, defense." despite the fact that the mink don't appear to need or want a defender. Hmm. It's the humans assuming this role because they see something that they interpret needing protection or needing Hmm. a, a defender. And that engages their emotional response. And I've, I think that is such an incredibly well-written line yeah. and such a good observation.
0: So something else I thought of earlier, and I never got it in, but now this brings it around nicely. Um, if, if they had, if they had, so they didn't save them. What if the, the mink were never able to develop anything on their own and because the others, the blocks blackian blackian because, the Blackians, because they, <laughs> they, it, they take care of everything because they took care of everything right. for them yeah, if, they if die. they're not able to even if they had to slowly start doing it what yeah. if they're just not able to take over and then they both end up being extinct
3: well that's a possibility i think there's two things about that i think one they were saying it looks like the mink were because if you think about it the mink learned another language at least was learning basic words he said food and then he said no food and then he said well then he taught them tick tick Tick, tick, for oh, thank yeah, that's you. right. for <laughs> But here's the interesting thing about that. And this is where it goes back. And this is why I love prime directive discussions. It goes back to all these. It's more relativism. Because here's the point.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: If
3: the Velokians died off, they made a very big point. I thought of saying the Volkians didn't let them farm on fertile land. I think it's pretty obvious the mink could survive on their yeah. own. Now, yeah. would they develop warp technology? I don't know, but I think they would be able to survive. You know, they may come back in 10,000 years Mm -hmm. and they're still a relatively primitive race of people who don't develop wart drive, but they're probably farming their planet. They're probably happy and they're probably successful. So now is if you have a species that may never develop advanced technology, are they worth more or less than the species Mm -hmm. that has developed advanced technology?
2: Yeah, good point.
3: And then what do you do with that?
2: Yeah, Absolutely um i, I really uh, want to see i, I really want to see where the mink are in discovery's new yes, timeline. Yes, yes. yes you know i yeah. want to know yeah. what's what's going on with these guys you know
1: i want yeah, them to hard. avenge the volachians yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> i want them i want the mink to be like now sitting on the federation council or something
1: right <laughs>
3: Yeah. Well, to your point, Charles, and that's the thing because I, I really did think, what if the what if like in ten years the Ferengi came back and the Blockins negotiated for a cure and warp yep. drive? They'd probably be really pissed at what would now be the Federation. Yeah. You know, it might change their entire planetary. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Outlook. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Uh, but they don't right. know that they did. They had that and didn't share it. What's that? They didn't know that they had the solution and didn't share it. Other than the warp drive. They don't yeah. know that they had the solution. Yeah, so I
3: don't do think our ever said, hey, we have a cure, but we're not right. giving
1: it to you. Yeah, right. No,
3: that's, a, that's good a good point. point. That's a very, very, that's very good. They may, but they may just, maybe they just be pissed about them not giving on warp drive. Exactly. One real, quick, one real quick thing I want to say, based on what you were saying, Alan, about how this show just does an incredible world building with flocks. I thought one of the most powerful scenes in this entire show, and I just love it. And it's it's so logical as Flock says, basically about uh, relationships. He goes, I'm going to talk to the only other person on board who can understand basically what's going on with him and Cutler. And what I find so amazing is he goes and he talks to Paul. Yep, and. As a Vulcan, she's from a much more advanced civilization as he is. She's from a civilization that's more, quote-unquote, emotionally mature about being in space. But after a minute, he's like, I find the conversation with her unsettling. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. she should, you know, he wants to hear the experience of another being from another space-faring race that's much older and, quote-unquote, wiser than Earth. And she's pretty much like, you're just a curiosity to her. and She's probably not even interested in you. And he's like, damn. She's (laughs) just (laughs) looking for some strange.
1: (laughs) She was making good points, though.
3: Um, Absolutely. Literally. yeah that
1: could have been the case
2: yeah but i think I, I i really enjoy the fact that i mean he's such a jovial personality yes. it's yeah. it's interesting to see in this one episode at least that sort of like undercurrent of isolation and loneliness they are the only two oh, unless you count porthos which of course i always do they're the only two non-human right of uh, uh, crew members yeah and uh he's he even has a hard time relating to her so they yeah. They have this huge commonality, but they don't really have that much commonality. Yeah. yeah, I think that's so fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think my my favorite single scene in the was when um, they were at the movies.
0: Yes, that's sounds about to Yeah, and she she, she thinks she doesn't like it because he
1: keeps looking around, and she's like, "Do you want to go?" And he's like, "No, I want to see how it turns out." But he's not talking about the movies, right. talking About the emotional responses of the. Yes, yes. He's, he's on the edge of his seat to see how the humans respond to the movie. I thought that was yeah, yeah, I love that.
3: Love. And Alan said, it well, Flox has Fox has an infectious cheeriness about him. And yes. to your point, Alan and Charles, I love that scene because Flox has, he has a look of wonder. It's not like a specimen. He has a look of wonder and delight at looking at human behavior. And when Trip is crying to your point, he literally leans forward. He's just looking at it. Right. He's, He's just, just watching the action
2: happen. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I just,
1: I just loved it. Well,
3: any other final thoughts?
2: Um, uh, yeah, yeah you, you go ahead, Keith.
3: Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Alan. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. On well, me, and I've been talking a whole
2: lot. <laughs> mine might be a little bit of a downer. I just wanted to say one uh, last thing about uh, Kelly Waymeyer, who played uh, Cutler. Right. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed her performance. I thought she was so good. She was only in a couple of episodes, yes, um, and then uh, passed away. Um, and I think it was of some uh, like a, a heart related um, issue. And yeah. I, I think that character had so much potential and i would love to have seen her be able to be a a continuing recurring character on the show and um so i just want to say that you know i I, it just breaks my heart watching this because knowing how much potential the character and the actor had um i i find it so sad to Mm -hmm. you know that we don't get more
3: of her so quick question for me from y'all, do, do y'all at the end of the day, do each one of you, do you agree or disagree with the decision that Archer made ultimately? Disagree.
1: No, I disagree. Alan? Uh, <laughs> I, I,
2: I disagree. And I think mostly because it was a unilateral decision made on the spot and not something that was discussed with uh, anybody else in uh, some other position of authority.
1: It wasn't like, even really debated on the ship much. It wasn't even right. much. At
2: exactly. Right. So, yes, I think at least because of the process of the decision was made, I disagree.
3: I lean more toward agreeing with the decision, you but I agree say. with you. Not as I know. <laughs> I agree. And, and, uh, y'all know, I, have, I know I've had a tendency to do this sometimes, so bear with me, but I, I do bring these things in as a black person from the history of slavery. When the mink said, they don't let us farm on the fertile land. They give us everything they need. They take care of us. I bristled. I mean, that's, that's what slavery was. I actually took a class in college once where a lady who was not of my ethnicity, honestly, and just so sincerely said that thing in class. She said, well, I don't know what they were complaining about. They were taken care of. So Uh I don't understand why any black person, this was like, in college. So this is not like a long, long time ago. So when they described the make like the makes that they said they take care I bristled. Everything in me bristled at that. It's like, this is a black man's like thing. It set me off. Sure. Yet despite all that, I still understand the decision not to help the Valachians, which is so weird for me to say that. Although I agree with y'all completely, this should have gone to, to uh, Fleet. Is it uh, just because you with. think
2: the Valachians are jerks and <sighs> it should, it should be allowed to die off?
3: No, it really I'm kidding. is about I'm kidding, yeah, but. and and that's the thing. I, I, it really is kind of like if you say one, you hurt the other. But to your point, Alan, I think there was I think to goose us along, they gave us just enough little things to make it a little easier to like yeah. not have as much sympathy. Like the fact that the Velokians treated them well, but almost like pets. They didn't let them fall on mm-hmm. yeah, the floor yeah. land, and then we, and there's this happens more than once in the episode Cogenitor. This happens. They come in and say. You were saying this so the group is inferior, but you're not really working with them. And we come in here in like two seconds. We think they have more potential than you have. Than right. you think They had. So I think yeah. at the end of the day, I kind of understand the decision, but I do agree. It should have been done unilaterally. But I think that's the thing about prime directives. I don't think anybody ever agrees on prime directive. And that's that yeah. even if you hate the show and hate the premise. I love the discussion that a prime directive episode makes everybody have.
2: I yeah. agree with that statement.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, Alan, where can people find more of you on the internet?
2: Okay. Well, let's start with hulanta.com uh, <laughs> and Hulanta Facebook page and group. Um, I also have my publishing company, which is cosmicpress.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C press.com. And you can find that on Facebook as well.
3: And how about you, Keith? You can find me on Instagram and on Facebook, or I'm a member of all the ESO network groups and publish uh, and uh, post things pretty frequently. How about us, Veronica?
0: Well, nerdy.com. Alan, you missed it again.
3: <laughs> I
2: actually had <laughs> I actually had <laughs> muted my mic, and I didn't get to unmute it in time. <laughs> but I said it exactly in time with you. <laughs> there you You'll go. You'll just have to take my word on that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. No. Nah.
1: <laughs> yeah, you can find us on Facebook and really any of the social media. And then we'll be at DragonCon coming up soon and uh, virtual uh Treklanta, uh where Earth Station Trek will also be appearing. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Oh, and everyone's looking at me through the camera now. <laughs> you gotta take us out, Veronica. What do you got?
3: What do you got?
0: Okay. I had something earlier, and now it's left my brain again. This is why I need to like write things down. When I think of them during the show.
2: Yeah. Was um, it? Was it? Teak, teak?
0: <laughs> ah! Oh yeah. yeah! Let's go with that. Teak, teak. <laughs> Love it. Teak, teak. Awesome.
1: Thank you for listening to Earth Station Trek. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a positive rating.
0: or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.